1: Hello, welcome to New Books in African-American Studies. I'm Sean Hamilton, your host. Our guest today is Vladimir Alexandrov, author of The Black Russian. The Black Russian is an epic and often tragic story of Frederick Bruce Thomas, an African-American entrepreneur who seemed to spend most of his life on both the right and the wrong side of history. Mr. Thomas was a man who did not know his place. Using the parlance of the time, he traveled widely. He opened multiple successful businesses, and he confronted and combated many of the isms of his time, classism, racism, and nativism, yet remain little known to many, even some of his family members until now. Vladimir, welcome, and uh, maybe you can start by telling us a little bit about yourself.
0: Uh, thanks, Sean. I'm glad to be talking with you. Same here. I teach uh, Russian literature and culture at Yale. Um, I've been here for over 25 years. Uh, before that, I taught russian uh, literature and culture at harvard and i got a phd in comparative literature at princeton so actually working on an african-american like frederick thomas was a very innovative project for me
1: right right and now um how how did you how did you learn about frederick thomas i'd never heard of him at, at all in fact
0: um, I'm glad you asked because I remember the moment in detail uh, because I read a sentence six years ago that changed my life and resulted in this book. I was preparing to teach a graduate seminar on Russian uh, culture between the two world wars, Russian emigre culture, and I was reading the uh, memoirs of a Russian singer, uh, Alexander Virtynski, who was very popular at the end of the First World War in Russia and then in the 1920s when he emigrated in Western Europe. And he described how in 1920, he escaped from the Bolsheviks in the south of Russia and landed in Constantinople, which is, of course, what Istanbul used to be called. Mm -hmm. And then he um, wrote the following sentence, which I'll translate, uh, roughly saying, I then began to sing in the entertainment garden of our famous Moscow Negro, Fyodor Fyodorovich Thomas, the owner of the famous Maxim in Moscow. Mm-hmm. That so surprised me that I closed the book and put it down uh, because I had studied this period in Russian history, and I knew that uh, black people of any kind were very rare in imperial Russia that is prior to 1917. In fact, you know, to this day, if you ask a reasonably well-educated Russian person, name the most famous black person in Russian imperial history, they're likely to name someone by the name of Abram Hannibal, mm-hmm. uh, who actually is mostly remembered because he's the great-great-grandfather of Russia's national writer, Alexander Pushkin. Right. right. But uh, Hannibal lived in the first part of the 18th century, And so there were no others that stood out in the same way in the other uh, half of the 18th or in the 19th century. So I was immediately intrigued. And like anybody else who comes across something brand new and you want a quick answer, I Googled him. (laughs) (laughs) And nothing came up. And so I used the Russian version of Google. And what came up was the same sentence from Wierzynski's memoir that had gotten me started (laughs) And so I was uh, hooked by then, and I began to dig in Yale's very rich library collections. And I found surprisingly little, and what little I found was contradictory. Um, And then I had a wonderful gift uh, ahead of me. I had a sabbatical for a year, and I decided to dedicate all of it to figuring out who this remarkable person was. And so I wound up doing research in various parts of the United States a lot in the National Archives in and outside of Washington, D.C. But I also went to Russia, Uh, I went to France, to England, to Turkey eventually. I even tried to do research by proxy, by hiring people in places like Rotterdam and Buenos Aires. I would have been on the first plane out there if they had turned anything up. But at the end of the year, I had found a lot of information about this man, and so I was able to uh, write the book. <clears throat> right. And
1: now, <clears throat> what year was Frederick Thomas born?
0: Well, yeah. <clears throat> so I found out that this man who had been referred to in Russian as Fyodor Fyodorovich Thomas was actually Frederick Bruce Thomas. And he was born in 1872 in Cahoma County, Mississippi, where his parents had been slaves.
1: Right. And um, t- tell a little bit about his his parents, because they had a pretty interesting story. And we sort of we sort of see where he gets a lot of his ambition from and his sort of drive, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, There's no doubt that Frederick got his wings from his parents who were absolutely remarkable people. Um, Their life in the South was characterized by two triumphs and two tragedies. The first triumph was that in 1869, Frederick's father, Louis, was able to buy at auction Uh, 200-acre piece of land in Cahoma County, including maybe half of that being farmland. Uh, This was very unusual because even though it was reconstruction, very few uh, black people owned any kind of property. And this was a very sizable piece of land. I remember seeing in the census records for 1870 that there were maybe 250 farms all told in Cahoma County, only six of which were owned by black families And the vast majority of the land was owned by a few rich white families. There were lots of whites who didn't own anything either. So that was um, a remarkable achievement. And within a year, uh, oh, I didn't mention how much he had paid at auction for this, which was a real bargain. Uh, It was $20. And he had three years to pay it off at six and two-thirds dollars and fractions of pennies a year over the course of three years. And then the census showed that the value of the farm, the Thomas Farm, was over $5,000 in 1870 money uh, within a year of their taking it over. So they were immediately catapulted, or they weren't catapulted, they did it themselves. They put themselves into a really um, kind of elite category of landowners. So that's the farm where Frederick was born a few years later. Another remarkable thing that they did that showed... A commitment to the local community, something that Frederick also inherited from them in his later life, was that in 1879, Lewis and his uh, second wife, uh, Frederick's stepmother, a woman by the name of India, donated for a dollar uh, an acre of land to found an AME church on their property. And this also played a crucial role in um, Frederick's life, because it's clear that that is probably where he got the rudiments of an education. Because, as you know, in the South, for a long time, churches functioned not just as places of worship, but also as social and political gathering places, as local schools. So the 1880 census showed that he um, had been to school, which was also very unusual because, um, you know, there were few opportunities for African-American children to go to school in those days. So um, there are other things that they did that were remarkable in terms of their economic advancement. I mean, they increased their land holding to over 600 acres over the years. Um, Another thing that Frederick would do later in his life when he was in Moscow, for example, he was always trying to um, get more uh, property um, into his hands. But this kind of prominence that they had achieved uh, came with a price um, because of racism from the local white planters. And in 1886, a rich, a very rich and powerful white planter concocted a scheme to steal their farm and so the thomases (laughs) showed remarkable character in the face of this as well because they took the man to court and they won the first round which was unprecedented Uh, they did have white lawyers who didn't like the white lawyers for the white planter on their side but they fought Uh, they had real courage of their convictions Um, This resulted in a protracted lawsuit that went to the Mississippi State Supreme Court and it lasted years. uh, And given the fact that Mississippi at this point, uh, in the late 1880s, by 1890, was becoming the lynchingest state in the South, they decided to get out of harm's way and move to Memphis, leaving the court process to continue back in Cahoma. Um, which was Frederick's first exposure to um, urban life because he had spent all of his youth on the family farm up until that point.
1: Okay. And now, Frederick traveled a bit in his early adult life in the States, right? Can you just tell us a little bit about his early travels before he actually left the country?
0: Yeah, no, that was also very unusual for a young African-American man in those days, because somebody who had worked on a farm uh, in the South and who was interested in urban life would normally do something like go to Memphis or some other big southern city. But Frederick uh, decided to, after the family disintegrated in 1890, decided to go north, and this was decades before the Great Migration began, which really began in earnest only after the First World War. So he went to uh, Chicago, and then he went to Brooklyn, which wasn't part of New York City yet in those days. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was between 1890 and 1894. Um, The population of African Americans in both places was minuscule in those days, somewhere around 1.3 or 1.4%. Uh, and although it was freer there for him than it was in the South, he was still restricted in what he could do, uh, which meant that he became uh, a waiter and a valet. Uh, but he was very good at it. So that, say, in Chicago, he began to work in what was then probably the most famous and most technologically advanced hotel in the country, which had just been built for the 1893 World's Fair. And in, the, in Brooklyn, he became a valet to a very prominent businessman. So he rose to the top of his uh, professions, and he actually learned professions that proved to be very valuable for him later on in life. Right.
1: And now he left the country in, um, to, to go to, to the U.K. to study,
0: Right, music. Yeah. Um, he had a passion for music, which I'm assuming he must have gotten from the great tradition of church singing that he heard as a child in Kahoma County. Um, he had a, an emigrate German uh, teacher of voice in Manhattan uh, who recommended to him that he go to London to study because of the color line that existed in musical schools in the North in the United States. And so Frederick, in 1894, got on a boat and went to London. Um, he didn't succeed in that plan. Um, he wanted to work his way through the music school, and they wouldn't allow it. And I initially thought this was for um, racist reasons, ultimately. But then I discovered that England, in 1894, and for that matter, France in the same years, too, Uh, was actually colorblind with regard to uh, people of any kind of African descent, whether they came directly from Africa, the Caribbean, or the United States. The only um, racist attitudes towards black people in England at that time was from visiting American tourists um, who would show up and be shocked by seeing a black man and a white woman uh, eating at a restaurant or dancing at some fancy ball, and they would come back to the States and write letters of outrage to local newspaper editors uh, saying what they saw. So um, Frederick entered an entirely different world in terms of racial issues uh, when he went to England.
1: Right. And now tell us a little little bit about his travels through throughout Europe, bef- before he gets to Russia, because he learns to speak a few different languages. and
0: Yeah. No, he was um, obviously uh, a very uh, intelligent and uh, quick learner. Um, he, in 1894, uh, uh, went from, uh, sorry, yeah, in 1895, it must have been, he went to France from England, and that was a big change for him. Because, obviously, in England, they still spoke a version of the language that he'd grown up with in the United States. But he learned French uh, rapidly and perfectly. I came across the memoirs of an American newspaper reporter who encountered Frederick in Monte Carlo on the French Riviera. Uh, And the American reporter, who was sympathetic to Frederick, was struck by what pure Parisian French uh, Frederick spoke. But when he switched to English, it was a typical southern kind of accent at American English. Um, he also was struck by how sophisticated Frederick had become in European ways, um, how well he understood the rarefied atmosphere in the very fancy hotel uh, in Monte Carlo and how he understood all the ins and outs of the famous casino in Monte Carlo, which was a famous drawing card for people from all over Europe. But Frederick also went to Italy because he wanted to learn Italian. He spent time working in various German cities. He picked up quite a bit of German, from what I've gathered. Uh, And I think it was probably in Monte Carlo that uh, Frederick caught the eye of um, visiting Russian noblemen. Um, He subsequently said that it was even a grand duke, which is the title that's given in English to the sons and grandsons of Russian emperors. And so that man apparently is the one who decided to hire Frederick as a valet. You know, I mentioned before that learning to be a valet and a waiter was very useful for Frederick because these are highly portable professions. Mm -hmm. If you can do them in Chicago and in Brooklyn, you can certainly do them in Western Europe. And Frederick did. I mean, he was even the head waiter at a French resort before he went to Monte Carlo, showing how successful he had become. But in any event, he was hired for a while as a servant by this uh, Russian nobleman, and that's how he went to Russia for the first time.
1: Yeah, yeah. and now talk a little bit about the sort of the American. When I was reading your book, I was really struck by the way Americans wrote about Frederick in comparison to the way Europeans wrote about him. Um, There were a few articles that I think you you found, where or maybe letters, where Americans encountered Frederick and wrote a bit about him back home, and it seemed almost as if they they couldn't quite understand who he was or or what he was doing, right?
0: Yeah, he didn't fit the mold. I mean, American attitudes, for the most part, uh, toward um, black people in those days were sort of colored by Jim Crow sentiments. And There were these uh, Americans who were racists, as I said, and who would encounter Frederick in Europe uh, or later on in Turkey and who would be impressed by him because of his um, social skills. He was also, incidentally, very good-looking. He was very polished and sophisticated in his manner. When he became a rich uh, owner of nightclubs, people were impressed by that. But sometimes they would still make snide comments about him, uh, indicating that they resented the fact that he was uh, a black man. Um, But even when people admired him, like the newspaper reporter who met him in Monte Carlo, it was frequently with a kind of patronizing attitude that whites had toward black people in those days in the United States. The striking thing is that The responses of Western Europeans, whether they were Brits or French or Russians, were, as I mentioned, largely colorblind so that when Frederick wound up in Russia and worked his way up uh, from being a waiter to becoming uh, a millionaire, he encountered no racist attitudes at all from any of the Russians that he uh, met there or from Western Europeans that he interacted with. But Americans occasionally would comment about him in a way that was somewhat disparaging, even if they envied him, his success.
1: Right. Now, just can, can you tell us a little, a little bit about Tsar's Russia at, the, at that time? Uh, this is 1899 when he, when he goes to Russia, right?
0: Yeah. Well, it was entering its twilight years. Um, basically, there are sort of two kind of graphs that one can imagine To characterize the almost 20 years that Frederick spent in the Russian um, territory, whether the empire or the early Soviet Union, the historical graph of the country as a whole was on a constant decline. In other words, things were going, for the most part, from bad to worse politically, especially when the First World War broke out in 1914, which Russia was not able to uh, fight successfully. What do I mean by the curve going down? There were constant strikes by workers. There was disaffection uh, among vast swaths of the population. Many people were impoverished. Uh, there were political crises. Um, there were terrorist acts constantly against czarist officials. Um, in 1905, there was a very serious revolution that involved artillery fire by government troops against striking workers in Moscow. So uh, the situation kept deteriorating politically in the country as a whole. Um, But for Frederick, ironically enough, the situation kept improving all during this time because uh, he rose from being a waiter in a restaurant to becoming a head waiter to becoming the assistant of the owner of one of the swankiest restaurants in the entire Russian empire. Um, He got married, he had children. Uh, Even though the political atmosphere in the country was deteriorating, uh, there were always people around who had money and wanted to have a good time and who would patronize his establishments. So there's great irony in that fact that his situation would be improving as the country was collapsing around him, which it did in the end of 1917.
1: Right. And how did he come to own his first restaurant?
0: You know, he actually followed a career path that was not, strictly speaking, unique to him. In 1910, he was the assistant to a man by the name of Alexei Sudakov, who owned the Yar restaurant in Moscow. This is the place to which Grand Dukes from St. Petersburg would come when they visited It's the place where the notorious uh, religious charlatan Rasputin used to come to carouse as well uh, before the revolution. It was where people with money, uh, people who were powerful, would all come. And Frederick is remembered as having been uh, very uh, polished and uh, welcoming in his manner. He had to be a terrific psychologist Uh, to read clients' interests, and he was great at this. He was the close personal assistant to the owner, and so he made such generous tips. Uh, Some people would give a person like Frederick a tip of a gold uh, cigarette case covered with diamonds, for example, that by, um, by the end of 1910, together with two Russians who had followed a similar path and risen in the ranks, they pooled their savings together, And they rented what was a failed entertainment garden in uh, the center of Moscow. Uh, They revived it. Uh, Frederick quickly became the leading figure in this, so that the three guys were referred to as Thomas and Company, showing that in the Russian press, he was recognized as the one who was most importantly in charge. And within a year, they had made it into a great success, so that each one of them cleared in today's money, a million dollars after a year of um, keeping this place going. And that was the beginning of his uh, great success and financial fortune in Moscow.
1: Right. And then what, what was Max Maxine? That was his next venture, right?
0: Yeah, he made uh, so much money in the first one, which was called Aquarium, that he decided to start um, a venture of his own. And so he found what was a kind of a failed theater-slash-restaurant building on a central street in Moscow, even closer to the center of the city than the aquarium was. In fact, the location is known. I've been there in Moscow, and if you stand in front of the new building put up in the spot where Frederick's Maxim used to be, you can see the Kremlin, which is at the core of the city. So it's really in the heart of the entertainment district in the city. And so this was uh, uh, a building that had various spaces in it, several stages, several places where you could eat and drink, And he would put on vaudeville shows. He would put on um, light plays, uh, musical comedy, operettas. Um, There would be very good food and drink. It was very pricey. He was obviously targeting Moscow's moneyed classes. There was always a kind of a risque uh, flavor to some of the entertainments. Of course, nothing in comparison to what is considered adult entertainment today. But, for example, he would advertise that the can-can dancers from Paris would be performing on his stage. And you know what that involves. It's basically just women doing a kick dance. But this was at the time in Russia seen as being risque and provocative, although it went on everywhere in the city. And so this was an element of the kind of light entertainment that he excelled at providing to the well-heeled classes uh, of Moscow society
1: and talk a little bit about his personal life i know he was married a couple times
0: yeah uh he first married in 1901 um a german woman from uh, a provincial uh, german town um not much is known about her except that her background was quite humble her father was a telegraph operator but they from all accounts had a very fulfilling life they had three children together beautiful children and so even though i haven't found pictures of the wife whose name was hedwig uh, judging by how good looking he was she must have been beautiful as well because the kids were gorgeous and so uh, they had a very fulfilling happy family life for a decade and then she died of pneumonia which used to be a very widespread disease in those days and um, he wound up marrying for convenience i think the, the nanny that he had had to hire to help with raising his three kids. Um, that was not, um, a marriage of love judging by the fact that within a year of that marriage, Frederick began an affair with a beautiful, uh, young singer and dancer who had performed on the Maxim stage that he owned. Um, I found pictures of her and she was really very striking. Um, it began as an affair, but it ended with their getting married and her um, bearing him two more children, two sons. So he had a total of five children. And he eventually divorced the second wife and married the former mistress, and she remained faithful to him uh, to the end.
1: Got you. And talk a little bit about how World War I changed Frederick's, Frederick's fortune.
0: Yeah. Now, again, this is where those two different sort of graphs intersect, because for him, the First World War turned out to be a boon, uh, an advantage Uh, for the country. It was the final uh, beginning of the decline into chaos and revolution. Why was it to Frederick's advantage? Because the Russian imperial government um, announced prohibition to try to keep the troops from showing up for um being shipped off to the front drunk um and the same thing happened in russia as what happened in the united states a half dozen years later when prohibition was announced bootleggers began to make money hand over fist and every visible entertainment spot and restaurant in moscow sold alcoholic beverages illegally under the table Uh, in camouflaged bottles, or simply openly by bribing the local authorities. Again, not that dissimilar from what happened in the States. And so Thomas began to make uh, huge amounts of money that were even commented on in the local theatrical press. Um, He made so much money that taking a kind of a page from his parents' playbook, he began to look for really solid investments for it. And so he tried to branch out to getting some property in St. Petersburg, which was the imperial capital. When that didn't work, he bought himself a villa in the southern Black Sea port city of Odessa, uh, a very expensive one by the norms of the time. And he bought, just on the eve of the first revolution of 1917, uh, a cluster of um, apartment buildings, again in the center of Moscow. Uh, so he had money to spare, and he was obviously not expecting the country to collapse around him uh, because he was rooting himself all the more deeply in Russia by buying this this kind of real estate. But, um, you know, the revolution came inexorably, and that changed everything for him.
1: Right. now, And how did it sort of explain the, the transformation from... The, um, from Russia moving from being a constitutional monarchy to the, the Bolsheviks how did what was Frederick's relationship with the Bolsheviks like? I know at one point he had tried to negotiate with them right or well,
0: yeah, yeah he tried to negotiate initially with the more liberal interim government that appeared uh, earlier in 1917 because there were really two revolutions one in March and one in November. And the March Revolution um, was a fairly uh, liberal kind of affair. Um, It it had some, some radical ideas that motivated it, but it was possible for Frederick to find a common ground with it and to change the nature of the entertainments that he provided in his venues in a way that would appeal to the newly empowered classes who were workers and peasants and soldiers who were mostly workers and peasants as well. So he managed to um, sort of muddle along reasonably well during this interim period. But when in November of 1917, the Bolsheviks overthrew that liberal interim regime, they instituted a very harsh class-based system of rule. It didn't make any difference to them that Frederick had been an oppressed black man in the United States. They saw him as a class enemy because he was now a rich man in Russia. And so when that revolution occurred, uh, he, there was nothing he could do to redeem himself. You know, even had he decided to support wholeheartedly the new Bolshevik radical um, communist sort of ideology, the fact that he was tainted by his economic success in the past would not have allowed him to join the new forces. So uh, what the Bolsheviks did when they took over is they began to take away private property. And they took away Frederick's uh, theaters and his apartment buildings in Moscow and left him with hardly anything to live on. And he also knew, and this is widely visible everywhere around you, that people of his sort were being systematically, in some cases, killed simply because the Bolsheviks wanted to transform the new society into one where the formerly powerful and rich would be basically disenfranchised or simply destroyed. Right. And so he had no choice but to escape, to save his life.
1: Right. And, and talk talk a little bit about his escape. That was, um, that was actually the, the opening of the book.
0: Yeah, it's a very dramatic moment, and I, I put it at the beginning of the book because I thought it would both show where Frederick had been to in the past, where he came from and where he was heading, and it would sort of intrigue the reader. At least that was my hope. Um, And um, he wound up in Odessa, the city that I mentioned on the coast of the Black Sea to the south of Moscow, where he happened to have a villa. Now, um, he escaped to that city because, for various historical reasons, it wasn't under Bolshevik control. Uh, And he could, in other words, get away from the threat of arrest and execution by going there with his family. And um, there was great hope on the part of people like him that the Soviet Bolshevik regime would collapse or it would be destroyed by the allies after the end of the First World War. And so they waited to the south of Soviet Russia along the edge of the Black Sea for things to change so that they could go back to their cities like Moscow and reclaim their property. Well, it didn't work out that way. Uh, The Allies uh, proved incapable and uninterested in trying to fight the Bolsheviks after the end of the First World War. And the Bolsheviks eventually began to threaten this city of Odessa with occupation. And so when news of this broke out, there was a panicked rush for boats because you had your backs to the Black Sea. There was no place to go on land. The only way to escape was across the Black Sea. And everybody wanted to go to Constantinople because that area was under Allied occupation. You could be safe there. And so Frederick had to um, play a very cunning game to get on board a a boat that was in charge of evacuating Allied um, refugees uh, he had to um, lie to the American consul general to get on board the boat, who in his official report to Washington did refer to Frederick, as all Americans always did, as colored. In other words, he would never see him just as a person, but always would mark him racially. And so after a hair-raising couple of weeks, he managed, Frederick did, with his part of his family, to get to the safety of Constantinople.
1: Right. And talk a little bit about his his family, because everyone wasn't able to make it out, right?
0: No. Uh, there were several uh, sort of tragic complications. The first one was when Frederick was trying to get his family out of Moscow. He got them out first, most of them, and then he left himself. And I mentioned that he had a second wife at the same time that he began an affair with the woman who became his third wife. At any rate, there were tensions between them. And between Frederick and his second wife. And um, Frederick's youngest daughter, um, a girl by the name of Irma, uh, wound up being a kind of a pawn between the second wife and Frederick. And she wound up staying in Moscow when Frederick and the rest of his family left for the South. Uh, Frederick would never see that little girl again. And she wound up having a tragic life. He lost his second daughter during the panicked evacuation from odessa because it happened in the middle of the night Uh, it was so chaotic that people simply got separated one from the other and when frederick and his three sons and his third wife got on board a boat his oldest daughter olga was left behind he tried to find her once he got to constantinople he paid money to people to try to locate her uh, and they eventually did get back in touch, but he never actually saw her again, because she wound up going to Romania and then to France, where he supported her for a while. So there was a tragic element to all of this in terms of the impact it had on his family life. Mm-hmm.
1: Can, can you just describe Turkey um, when when Frederick arrives? What, what What's the <clears throat> scene like there?
0: Yeah, it was um, a remarkably interesting and complex place. The first thing is that the Turks had sided with the Germans and with the Austro-Hungarians during the First World War. And so when um, Germany surrendered, uh, the Allies uh, brought troops and a big, powerful fleet uh, to Constantinople, because Turkey was on the losing side. And the Allies had elaborate plans to dismember the vast Ottoman Empire. They were going to take over Constantinople and the area around it on the Bosporus, which is this body of water that links the Black Sea eventually to the Mediterranean. They were going to make it into an international city like Shanghai had been since the 19th century in China. What this meant was that there were tens of thousands of British, French, Italian, and American uh, sailors, soldiers, officers, businessmen, and diplomats that suddenly descended on this very Muslim, city it had been the capital of this muslim ottoman empire um so the city was undergoing enormous change when frederick arrived in april of 1919 uh the allies already had been investing the city with their own people and what do all these mostly single men want uh when they're not on duty they want some form of wine women and song and there was nobody in constantinople who had had better experience at providing this than Frederick Bruce Thomas with his years in Russia. And so what he did is he had no money left. He lost almost everything when he escaped from the Bolsheviks in Russia. He took out loans at usurious rates, and he managed to open an entertainment venue, which, like the ones he had had in Moscow, you know, provided good food, a good drink, and Lively entertainment on stage, singers, dancers, juggling acts, that kind of stuff. And he immediately became very successful because he knew what the public wanted. Uh, So that was the beginning of his attempt to rebuild his life. Um, The thing about him is that he never gave up. You know, he didn't just acquiesce to the racism in the United States. He didn't stay merely a waiter in Western Europe. When he lost everything in Russia, he didn't just give up. He started from scratch. Um, He reinvented himself Mm -hmm. repeatedly um, in a way that actually is sort of very American, too, Mm -hmm. except that he did it abroad.
1: And and describe his efforts to to regain his citizenship. That was a a big part of his experience in
0: Constantinople, right? Yeah. And that's when the long arm of American racism uh, reached him again after decades, because when he had been in Moscow, He didn't have to deal with the Americans much at all. Uh, When he got to Constantinople, things were different. And that was because the country that had adopted him and that he had adopted, namely Russia, had ceased to exist with the revolution of 1917. The new Soviet state uh, was one that he didn't want to have anything to do with because they would have killed him uh, and they saw him as a class enemy. So he suddenly was a man without a country. And so he went to the Americans, who were part of the occupying powers in Constantinople and therefore real players in the history of the country at this point and asked for recognition as an American. And he was treated with disdain uh, by the American diplomats based on the records that I found. They resented that he had a white wife. They refused to believe that they were actually a married couple Uh, They resented the fact that he arrived in Constantinople, trailing stories of great financial success in Moscow. They resented the fact that when he started up his new uh, business in Constantinople, that he had lots of financial problems with merchants. And all of the merchants brought their complaints about him to the Americans in Constantinople because they took Frederick Thomas to be an American. And so he applied for uh, recognition as an American. He wanted to get an American passport to be able to travel. And uh, they, to make a long and complex story short, refused him. Mm -hmm. Um, I found documents that um, were generated by people in the State Department in Washington who were charged with looking for paperwork in the State Department archives indicating that Thomas had lived in the United States at some point. And they said, we can't find any, which is either ineptitude or a lie. Because when I looked in the State (laughs) Department decades later, I found at least eight different passport applications and lots of other stuff about him as well. And so I think that the um, functionaries in D.C., as well as the diplomats in Constantinople, for the most part, were basically racist. Uh, Everybody else who met Thomas immediately could tell that he was an African-American from the South Mm -hmm. because of his appearance and the way he spoke English. So it was on a kind of a technical pretext that they denied him recognition as an American, which meant that when the new Turkish Republic was proclaimed in 1923, he was stateless in it. He didn't have recognition by any government. And that caused problems for him down the road.
1: right. And now, describe the transformation that that, that <clears throat> occurred with, with the new republic in Turkey.
0: Well, you know, in a curious way, um, Frederick Thomas's activities in Constantinople were in step with an important aspect of the creation of the Turkish Republic. The Republic is basically um, the child of Mustafa Kemal, uh, the man who became known as Ataturk the father of the Turks, the uh, sort of George Washington, if you will, of the Turkish Republic. Mm -hmm. He had been a military officer, and he was very secular in his orientation. Uh, The Ottoman Empire was very religious. It was a Muslim empire. And um, what Ataturk wanted was to break down, for example, the barriers between men and women that were traditional in Ottoman society. Um, So he encouraged his officers to go to dances and to dance with women, It's just something that was not done in Ottoman society. Whereas it is something that was, of course, inherent in the kinds of activities that Frederick Thomas fostered in his nightclubs, because people would go to his nightclub to have a meal, to have drinks, to watch a show, and to dance. And even the Americans who resented him as a successful black man still went to his nightclubs to have a good time and to dance. Uh, Frederick, incidentally, also imported jazz to uh, Turkey. He was the first one to do it. And his venues became inextricably linked in people's minds with terrific performances of jazz and dancing to the music. So, um, you know, Frederick was doing what he did best by providing entertainment, but the entertainment helped to secularize at least some elements of Constantinople society. Um... Obviously, I mean, Muslims also um, did not drink alcohol, but uh, Ataturk uh, did. Um, So that also, in a sense, advanced the cause of secularism that was a salient feature of the new regime. Mm -hmm. There were drawbacks as well um, to the republic that appeared in 1923 for people like Frederick Thomas. The old Ottoman Empire Um, had been um, open to giving perks of various kinds to foreigners. So that, for example, if you were an American and you got into some kind of a traffic accident in Constantinople prior to 1923, you wouldn't be tried in a Turkish court, you could be tried in an American consular court. So these kinds of privileges and perks were common under the Ottomans. Under Ataturk, they were done away with. And there were severe restrictions placed on what foreigners could and could not do, which made it difficult for Frederick to continue to run his businesses, uh, because he was not a Turkish citizen. They wouldn't accept him into Turkish citizenship. The Americans weren't protecting him. There's not much that they could have done after 23 anyway. And so he was left uh, to his own devices. He succeeded for a while, but in the end, he started to pay the price. Mm
1: -hmm. And he fled Constantinople. Where did he go next?
0: Well, that was really toward the end of his life when things really began to get tragic for him. He had debts that he couldn't manage for various reasons in Constantinople after having been a great success for four or five years and making a lot of money. And so he tried to escape his debtors to the new capital of the country, which was Ankara, which is still the capital of Turkey now. It had been moved there by Ataturk from Constantinople. He tried to start up a new business. In Ankara, again, he did not give up. He was prepared to try to make a new go of it, but he couldn't. And so that's where he was arrested for his debts and eventually wound up being transferred back to Constantinople to a debtor's prison, which is where he got sick and came close to dying. He died uh, in a hospital, but after having fallen ill in a debtor's prison, a tragic end. Right,
1: right definitely. And now you were able to speak to um well talk a little bit about his his um his the relatives that survived him after he died.
0: Yeah, they they had a really rough time of it. Um <clears throat> I mentioned, you know, the youngest daughter uh in, left behind in Moscow with the second uh wife. Uh she wound up getting out to Germany in the 1920s with her um stepmother and had a really rough time of it there and then eventually Later on, uh, married but committed suicide in Luxembourg. Um, The other daughter, Olga, was in pretty good shape for a while. When her father, Frederick, had money in Constantinople, he supported his daughter, Olga, in Paris, where she went to study after she had married a Russian man. But then, when Frederick started having problems in Constantinople in the mid-1920s, he had to cut off his support for Olga And so life became very hard for her. I'm not sure exactly what happened to her, but I gather that she eventually moved to Belgium. The three sons had a really rough time of it. Uh, One made it to Prague uh, in the 1920s because the Czech Republic was very hospitable to Russian emigre students. And the young man, whose name was Michael, had been born in Moscow, so he qualified Um, His family is the one that eventually um, survives to this day. The other two younger sons uh, made it to the United States, one in 1938, one in 1950 in a very complicated fashion, and had, from what I've been able to reconstruct, um, not very good lives in the United States. But the one sort of good family story that I can briefly describe is what happened to the son, Michael, who had studied in Prague and made it to Paris. Uh, He himself had a family— And I met his son, in other words, Frederick Bruce Thomas's grandson, uh, who's a very nice man, uh, lives in Paris, and who uh, told me the life story of his grandfather. (laughs) Um, In fact, the way I found him is also part of the adventure of dealing with this, uh, of writing this book, because I found the grandson through the grandson's uh, ex-wife, who turns out to be a very well-known designer of lingerie. Uh, Her name is Chantal Thomas, and if you uh, look her up on the web, she's all over the place. She has a very fancy boutique on the main shopping street in Paris and then stores all over the world as well. At any rate, they're divorced, but his relations with her were perfectly amicable, and so I was able to find him through her. And he was very surprised that I would suddenly surface in his life and told me the life story. Um, which uh, enthralled me. Uh, and then I began to do my own research, and after a year, I discovered that most of what the grandson had told me was invention, right.
1: <laughs> um,
0: which was also part of the adventure of working on this book. I can give you an example if you're, if you're curious. Absolutely. Yeah. So, I found uh, documentary evidence regarding Frederick's origins in Cahoma County, parents, former slaves, and so on. According to the grandson, uh, the man that I knew as Frederick Thomas was the son of a Native American uh, chief in New Mexico. <laughs> um, he did have a black and white ancestry as well, but he was the sort of prized son of a Native American in New Mexico. And rather than working his way up from the restaurant floor to positions of more and more authority the way Frederick did, the grandson said, That his grandfather had become a merchant seaman in the South China Sea, where he also became a smuggler. (laughs) And then rather than getting to Russia uh, the way I described as the servant of a nobleman, um, according to the grandson, his grandfather saved the life of a rich Russian in a bar in Shanghai, as a result of which the Russians set the young man up in grand style in Moscow. So there were other things of that sort. Uh, And all of this is psychologically very interesting as to why this kind of a story would have been generated instead of the actual document-based one that I unearthed. But uh, the grandson, um, I've kept in touch with him. I visited him after that. I told him what I had found. I gave him copies of documents. I was even able to give him a photograph of his own father that he'd never seen before that I found in archives. And The grandson was very upset uh, at what I told him. He said that he had been married to two different women in his life and that he had won their hands by telling the fantastic story of (laughs) his grandfather as being a Native American smuggler in China. But uh, the grandson very generously let me reproduce a terrific photograph of his grandfather in my book uh, where it shows how handsome Frederick actually was. And I sent uh, the grandson a copy of my book as soon as it was published. Um, and he doesn't read English, so he's going to have to wait for somebody to translate it for him uh, before he can respond to it. But um, anyway, that's, that's the connection with the family that I was able to find.
1: Right, right. Excellent. And so just tell us a little bit about your plans for, for the future, upcoming projects, anything
0: well, you know, I'm never going to find the project probably as unusual and as intriguing as Frederick Bruce Thomas turned out to be. Because, you know, one can come across fascinating sounding people. But the question is, can you find out any real information about them? Mm-hmm. And I was uh, fortunate, or let me let me put it this way. I think I've en- I enhanced my good luck by being as thorough as I possibly could. But you can find wonderful people and not find anything about them to speak of. So I'm interested in doing another book along these lines that would focus on an interesting person living in turbulent times. And like almost everybody else in the United States, I'm really attracted to the Civil War. Mm -hmm. And so there are two people that I'm thinking about. One of them is a Union general by the name of John Turchin, who actually turns out to be an ex-Russian imperial colonel by the name of Ivan Vasilyevich Turcheninov, hmm. who came to the United States in 1858 uh, and then became the commander of an Illinois um, volunteer regiment uh, when the Civil War began. And then another fellow that I'm interested in is also has a Russian-American connection. It's Cassius Marcellus Clay, <laughs> but but you know the 19th century um, a planter from Kentucky, ah oh, okay, after whom you know Muhammad Ali and his uh, original name was named. So Cassius Marcellus Clay came from a rich family in Kentucky. Uh, he went to Yale, uh, where he heard William Lloyd Garrison, uh, you know, preach against uh, slavery and for abolition. He became an ardent abolitionist. He freed. The family slaves back in Kentucky. He had a very uh, visible political career, and Lincoln appointed him as his ambassador to Russia during the Civil War. And so the original Cassius Marcellus Clay became very fond of Russia. The Russians loved him, and he did everything he could to keep Russia on the side of the Union during the American Civil War, because Britain and France came very close to supporting the South openly. Britain sent troops to Canada. The Russians sent a fleet to New York and another one to San Francisco in 1863 to show their support for the Union and their opposition to the Brits. So this was another person who sort of bridged Russia and the United States at a crucial time in American history. That's very fascinating. So I'm thinking about these two individuals as possible subjects. Yeah,
1: that sounds great. Fascinating, definitely.
0: Yeah. And, you know, there, there are also these wheels within wheels here, because the personal life of these individuals is very much connected to the kind of historical events in the United States. And those, in turn, are being affected by events in Europe. So there's a lot of really interesting meshing of stories that is possible here that attracts me. Right.
1: Right. Yeah. A lot of
0: connections. Yeah.
1: Definitely. Well, Vladimir, thanks so much for talking to me. Oh, it was a pleasure, sure. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I love the book once again. Um, I, I encourage everyone to go out and buy it, and um, we'll uh, we'll speak to you soon.
0: Okay, great. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks, Vladimir. You've been listening to an interview with Vladimir Alexandrov. I'm Sean Hamilton, the host of New Books in African American Studies. Thanks so much for listening.